You've got to have everybody 100% fresh for this ballgame. Somehow you've got to be fresh. In some cases, it may mean a lot of sex. In others, none. I don't know. <laughs> This week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week we continue our rewatch series with Super Bowl 23. Uh, does anyone have a new sport between October and June? Because I hear the whole NBA is taking a year off. Well, it should. And with me this week, announcing that he's coming out of NFL retirement in 2020, it's David Newman. I mean, why not? Jason Witten's doing it, you know? Uh, so is Brett Favre, apparently. Brett Favre? Yeah. Um, Did you see that? It, his his Instagram got hacked, and the one thing that his hacker posted was, I've got to follow my heart or whatever. I'm going to come back to the NFL in 2020. He should hit up the XFL, you know? I'm sure that I'm sure they take him. What, where, where in the starting 32 do you put a 49-year-old Brett Favre? Not in it. <laughs> you, think that, you think that there is all of the starting quarterbacks are currently better. What if we would throw in all the backup know, quarterbacks? Man. He'd probably be a solid backup quarterback right now. <laughs> really good for the QB room, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly um, the kind of guy you want to waste the Man, this on. other thing. So kind of like touch, like a reminder that NFL players are not like us, right? You see the the bit about Matthew Stafford and like him playing with the all of the, like all these tiny fractures in his back. No. Yeah. So he had like, I guess, several small fractures in his back that he played through for for most all of last season and i'm like reading this thinking i was like i had like a bit of a cough for a little over a week and i stopped exercising completely you were talking about a flu game because yeah. you had like a sore throat yeah uh and so it's just man really puts things in perspective there yeah it sure does uh it that sounds terrible i don't want any of that nope nope not that kind of human uh, so we have a, a continuation of our, of our watch series or rewatch series on this episode of the show. We really wanted to tackle a different kind of game for this rewatch. We wanted to see a Bill Walsh game and by extension, really a Joe Montana game. So we were kind of narrowing our options down and I thought to myself, well, there's one game I really enjoyed as a kid, the game that made me a Niners fan. That was Super Bowl 23. I remember it being an exciting game, a close game. Uh, and it was Bill Walsh's last game. So I thought it'd be fun to watch. So that's what we're going to do here on the podcast. And before we get to that, we're going to get to the rundown, though. A couple of stories here in the uh, NFL dead zone. And these stories sure, sure sound like the dead zone. Because you've got <laughs> formal, former agent Joel Corey said on, on a podcast, actually said on the Ringer podcast, he said, quote, if I was still an agent and I had a free agent, I would never send them to Brian Hampton, who's the director of football administration, uh, because he doesn't like how Brian Hampton and the 49ers do their contracts. Uh, so I mean, yeah, that's great. Sure. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about it a lot before, obviously like how team friendly these contracts are that the, the 49ers seem to get all these players to sign. And, uh, it's, it's kind of wild. Like if I was a player, if I was an agent, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be a little hesitant about signing that type of deal. Well, I think one of our listeners sent it to us because, or sent it to me on Twitter specifically because he was like, this is what I was afraid of. He said that like that, free agents would be steered away from coming to the 49ers because of the team-friendly contracts. And, and I would say, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think Richard Sherman it showed that, you know, you probably can deal with this front office in a way that makes sense. 
But additionally, I think agents are probably just going to go where they think they can get the best deal or the best money for their uh, for their player. And if the Niners have proven they will overpay for a player they think <laughs> sure. is worth it, so I, I don't really see it as much of an issue. I see it as more of a, sometimes they have some leverage and they can gain some protection. Other times they don't. Right. Yeah, I think you know there's there's little things that they've done. You know, in terms of uh, obviously you've got all all the guarantee like the rolling guarantee structure that you get with a lot of their deals. What's well, the roster bonuses? Right. Um, if you're not on yeah. the roster, you don't get paid. And I have a friend who's a Cowboys fan, and he is like worried about how much they're going to pay Dak. And I was like, try to get on, try to get on that cap contract, dude. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. So it, it really leans into getting players to bet on themselves, which. Players obviously want to do, but it isn't necessarily a smart move from them from like a negotiation standpoint. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I think ultimately, if if you've got an agent who is not able to do that, maybe get a better agent. All right. So it's also top player list time. Uh, we've got two that have come out. Pete Prisco has two 49ers on his top 100. George Kittle at 70. DeForest Buckner at 51. There were zero players in the PFF top 50. David, I expected more from you. I expected you, now that you are an analyst at PFF, I expected you to shoehorn at least a little Kittle, at least an honorable mention for Matt Breida. Um, I mean, like, if we could get a Robbie Gold mention in there, that I know you're working your magic. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Wishnowski. Wish for wish. Uh, wish. <laughs> wish the wish. Uh, never even going to see the light of day on one of these lists. Um yeah, man, I don't have that kind of sway there. I don't, I don't mess with All these right. lists. But um, I look, I, I think that uh, it's not out of place. Like, I think there's there's two players that you can really point to that I think most fans would look like. But uh, I, I think you're you got to remember that this is also a four win team and um, playing like the we're disrespected card uh, doesn't exactly fit. When, when you're you know coming off the second overall pick in the draft. So when we broke down our roster, we had four tier one players. They were DeForest Buckner, George Kittle, Jimmy Garoppolo, Mike McGlinchey. Do you think that, and, and the two players I'm sure that you're referring to are probably George Kittle uh, and DeForest Buckner, and yeah. with Jimmy Garoppolo being a, an incomplete at this point. Um, do you think that any of those players uh, can make the argument for being at the you know top fifty or one hundred of of their depending? Because I guess the criteria for the list matters, right? For PFF, right, was, that was the first thing. Yeah, uh, for PFF, it's the best play, the top fifty players in the game right now. Um, and and Pete Prisco probably just had like top one hundred or whatever. Do yeah, you, so I think the 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 fifty list is important to distinguish from. So we have also like the the top one hundred one, right? So the top one hundred one is a look back at only the previous season. So we're looking at the 101 best players from that previous season using only that season as the criteria. Um, the top 50 kind of is a little bit more forward-looking, but it's it's still more just kind of focused on the upcoming season. And then we're just kind of taking a larger sample of the player's you know career up until that point to determine. Uh, so it's not like a you know, 50 best 50 players we'd start a franchise with or something like that. And, and I think the other important criteria to mention with it is there's not really positional value baked into this, right? So it's, it's kind of more of an all positions created equal, purely looking at an evaluation standpoint and not getting into the valuation aspect of it. And so that's why you don't get 
quarterbacks that make up the top 15 players on the list, right? And that's why you still get running backs on the list. And and so there's a, a lot more even balance between those positions. Yeah, I think ultimately the only player that I think I could make a reasonable argument for is George Kittle. But I absolutely see how you wouldn't put those players on there. So I don't think... Yeah, it's- so I, th- I mean, I think with Kittle, right, I agree that he's the guy that I would probably make the strongest case for. But uh, I believe there was only one tight end on the list. It was only yeah. Travis Kelsey that made it, obviously Gronk being retired. Um, and, and I think it comes down to the fact that you've only got one year of track record with Kittle, yep. right? And, and so I think that's very valid. With Buckner, I think it's a case of you know, kind of 49ers fans may be overrating what is a very good player and not necessarily right. understanding completely where he fits in the larger landscape. There are a ton, ton of good interior defenders right now. And there are just guys that have been far more dominant than Buckner has been at this point in his yeah. career. And so I think you got six guys right now. Uh, I think that, that were DIs that made the list. I don't know that Buckner... Buckner's like maybe a fringe top 10 player there. Like there's, there's still several, like even if you wanted to say, okay, I don't like Damon Harrison. who was the last one because he's more of a, a run stuffing player. Like th- there are probably three, four five other players that are still more worthy ahead of Buckner at this stage. I, I would even argue that last season Buckner had a better season than he did this year. It's just that just this past year, even though he had 12 sacks and had three the year before. I think he was yeah. more disruptive as an individual player last year, even though he ended up with more sacks this year. Yeah, you have to, I mean, again, uh, got to over, not overrate the sacks, right? right. I think you, you see that big jump there, but when you look at his kind of per-play production, um, if anything, it took a small step back from the 2017 season. So we're going to get now to the rewatch of Super Bowl Twenty Three, But real quick, David, I just want to call out specifically to our loyal listeners, specifically the shirt that you're wearing right now. Because this shirt really is a masterpiece. It's fantastic. So it's, I will describe the shirt that is currently emblazoned across the chest of one Mr. David Newman. It is what looks like the scintillating silhouette of one Patrick Mahomes with a headband that has the outline of a Kansas City Chiefs logo because, you know, can't you... May or may not be a Chiefs logo. Correct. Well, allegedly (laughs) is a Chiefs logo. Uh, And it's, I think it just says big time throws. Uh, underneath the That's silhouette it. with uh, Patrick Mahomes in a Karate Kid style headband with what up? A, the pow on the background, uh, it's it's good. It's very on brand. Can get that at the uh, PFF store. Yeah, gonna get a quick plug there. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Yeah, you can't come in here and plug PFF store. Plug the Better Rival store. Come We've on, got a store. Pl- all sorts of stores. Get your T-shirts, man. Yeah, get get all the T-shirts. But yeah, I just thought that was uh, that was pretty phenomenal. But yeah, it's great. Love let's it. get to the rewatch. Super Bowl twenty three. First thing we've got to do is we've got to talk about the nineteen eighty eight year in context because the 1998 season was one mired in turmoil. The 1987 season ended in a crushing defeat for the 49ers. They lost in the NFC Divisional game against the Minnesota Vikings when they were widely considered to be the best team in the league. Bill Walsh later called that game one of the, quote, most devastating losses of his career. And it probably was in large part because of what happened after the game. Ada DeBartolo apparently was livid, probably drunk, and we'll say that he was (laughs) a little unkind to Bill Walsh. Uh, and, and I think if I remember correctly from uh, one of the biographies of Bill Walsh that I read, uh, the David Harris one, this is one of the games where DeBartolo fired him uh, of the multiple oh times that he fired yeah. him after the game because he was completely pissed off. It's, I mean, which is just completely insane, right? Like uh, of all the seasons, like that was a year you had the strike shortened season, right? 
you rolled through like the back half of your schedule once you got like basically all the players back and kind of had they time had, like, to adjust 10 again. Ten points scored against them in three games or whatever it was. Yeah, like the final three games exactly you had like maybe even fewer than ten points. It was something ridiculous. A shut a forty eight nothing shutout in there to end it. Um, and then, you know, you have a bad game in the playoffs, which is going to happen every once in a while. You know, your guy has two Super Bowls already at this stage. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's silly. It's, it's silly to think of like the incredible expectations that you get once you've reached that level of success. Yeah. It's interesting. I think to consider how Bill Walsh, you know, he felt very much the pressure of winning. And that's one of the reasons why yeah. the 1988 season and 89 Super Bowl was his last game coaching the 49ers. And I, I always think to myself, what if, because we always hear about the good things about Eddie Bartolo and he did a lot of really good things, the way he built the family, the way he took care of players, but he was still very much a hothead and he still punched holes in the walls and he, and he still fired his coaches and, you know, and was kind of a dick in that regard. I wonder if he were more of a well-rounded level-headed leader if Bill Walsh doesn't have another three, four, or five years at the helm. And, and what that does, if he has 15 years instead of 10 coaching the 49ers. I, I've always just Right, if you've that. got like a, a less stressful work environment, yeah. essentially, if you're Bill Walsh, like are yeah. you able to extend that? Yeah, And, it, and mm-hmm. if that's even possible with someone with the kind of makeup of Bill Walsh, because he's a very anxious person and he was always striving for perfection and he was very much a control freak. And it's just, you know, interesting things to think about. But yeah. this was also the peak quarterback controversy season because you had Joe versus Steve. Steve Young, of course, came to the 49ers in 1987 in a trade with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And Tampa Bay traded him because they thought it was a bust. I like I never ever want to be that team where you trade someone you're like this guy sucks and then he ends up being a Hall of Famer. San Diego, for example, yeah. uh, didn't trade Drew Brees but uh, let him go in free agency. Uh, that I, you never want to be the other team on the end yeah. of a Hall of Fame. For sure. Career. I mean, and it, at least if you're the Chargers there, right? Like, okay, Philip Rivers has been been a yeah. really good player for a long time, right? You didn't lose too badly there, but like the Bucks were. The box. Oh yeah. yeah. Vinny Testaverde, bro. <laughs> that's the that's the guy. Not that, great. That was the guy that you pinned your hopes on. Uh but you, you get to nineteen eighty eight and basically Bill Walsh begins to feed the media frenzy with one of his famous quotes because against the Vikings the previous year in 1987, Young came in in relief when oh not in relief, I guess when the Niners were down big, and Young played well. And Bill Walsh had it in his mind that Steve Young, that, that Joe Montana at this point, he was injury prone, that he wasn't going to be able to last the rigors of a full NFL season. So he was looking for reasons to play Steve Young. And he gets to the offseason in 88 and he says, quote, our strength is at quarterback, but our problem is we have two. There's a quarterback controversy developing. We'll have to select between Steve Young and Joe Montana. And that basically sets off a firestorm. Can you imagine some shit like that happened today? I was just thinking the same thing. Could you imagine like, a coach going in and be like, yep, we got like, could you could controversy? You, could you imagine like if, if, you know, Kyler Murray and Rosen at this point, if before anything ever happens, you hear, you hear Kingsbury come out and be like, you know what? We got two quarterbacks. We got a controversy on our hands. Let's see what happens. I can't even imagine an NFL head coach saying the word controversy without it being immediately preceded by the word. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And and he I mean, he basically set fire to the whole thing and just watched it burn. Um, and, and one of the interesting things that I read in the biography in that David Harris biography is that Walsh did explore trade partners in the offseason and had an offer from San Diego for two first round picks and a quote linebacker that Bill Walsh coveted. 
And then eventually that changed to be some other player and, and the deal eventually fell apart. But there were very real discussions to trade Joe Montana in, ahead of this 1988 season. Another one of those what ifs where if he gets traded, I mean, that's two Super Bowls. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of fair. Like you go back and at least like look through, you know, Montana's performance during that time. And like 86 might've been his worst season as a 49er, like from just a production standpoint. And then 88 was kind of just a little bit above that. So you look at kind of his numbers across the board and there, there's two pretty noticeable dips there. And so you're seeing that. And then obviously you've got the, you know, 87 that didn't end the way that you wanted it to when you thought you were rolling. So that kind of stretch, you could imagine, I guess, maybe feeling like he's breaking down, right? And, and not going to be the same guy that he was early in the career. And obviously, we saw him, you know, go through this playoffs. And then especially in 89, had um, probably the best season of his career and, and led one of the best teams in NFL history. So uh, didn't wasn't quite ready to stop at that point. But yeah, you, you could kind of see why they would start to be thinking that way at this point. So you have a head coach in Bill Walsh who is nearing what he feels is the end of his tenure as a coach. He's stressed out. He's burned out. He doesn't know exactly what to do, and he's having to deal with this quarterback controversy that he stokes the flames of. And, and then this quarterback controversy takes a life, takes on a life of its own. And then you get to the season, and the season is really one that builds to a turning point in Week 11. Because in Week 1, the quarterback controversy starts in earnest. Joe Montana starts the Week 1 game against the New Orleans Saints and proceeds to light the Saints up. Steve Young comes in relief. Has a poor showing, but for whatever reason, Bill Walsh says, hold on, Joe Montana, not actually healthy. So let me go ahead and start Steve Young in week two, but Steve Young does not play well against the New York football giants in week two. And all of a sudden, at the end of the game, fourth quarter with the 49ers down, Joe Montana apparently put some tussin on whatever was alien and is able to come in and immediately throws a dime down the sideline to Jerry Rice. The 49ers win the game. And Joe Montana comes back as the starter and plays a couple more games until Walsh kind of rotates them again. He keeps this rotation up through the next six games. The 49ers lose a few games. They win a few more. And then by the time they get to week nine, they face the Minnesota Vikings in a rematch of the previous year's playoff game. And Steve Young gets the start, doesn't play well for most of the game, but then ends up making that iconic 49-yard scramble to win the game near the end. And so the 49ers by week nine are on this roller coaster of up and down quarterback slipping and flopping. And the team doesn't seem like it's getting the solid footing that it should for a team of the talent level that it has. What's hilarious to me is that at that point, so after that week nine game where young has the touchdown run against the Vikings, there's six and three at this point. And they're of their three losses. One of them was by one point. Another one was by three in overtime. The, the only one loss where they really got it kind of handed to him a little bit, which was in week three against the Falcons. Like, could you imagine a team, like if, if a team's rotating quarterbacks today, it means they have two shitty quarterbacks. Like, I don't, I can't think of another situation where a team like recently would be able to rotate quarterbacks like that and still really uh come up with a winning record and then eventually like go on to win the Super Bowl, right? Hey man, I think you're discounting what the true offensive weapon Jason Tatum does for the New Orleans Saints. Oh my dear God. Yeah, that is that yeah. is quarterback rotation as finest. I think you're mistaken that a two quarterback system can't succeed. You you look at the illustrious Joe Flacco and Lamar Jackson. <laughs> 
I think there's another instance that completely shoots a hole in your theory, David Newman. Oh. I disagree with the premise that you cannot rotate quarterbacks. <laughs> I can't even finish that sentence. Yeah, no, no, just no. Yeah, not not great, Bob. Not great. Not great at all. But yeah, six and three. Like, and you know they lost a couple games, but still finished the season ten and six, right? But then, like, well, but then they lose two games in a row, right? And it's those yeah. two games in a row that really start to turn things uh, upside down because weeks ten and eleven were a turning point. The 49ers still starting Steve Young losing the last minute against the Arizona Cardinals, and, and this is the game that sticks in Steve Young's mind because he thinks that he had been starting to wrestle the starting job away from Joe Montana. And if they win that game against the Cardinals, he's the starter for the rest of the year. But instead, they lose that game. Another kind of interesting vision point in history. Where it's also, like, they're the Phoenix Cardinals at this point, which Jesus. is uh, hilarious. Yeah, Phoenix Cardinals. So, my B-dog. Uh, the, they lose that game, and then they lose back-to-back games for the first time since 1985. And in Week 11, they lose to the Raiders. And at that point, they're 6-5. and five. And that's when basically uh, two things happened. One, Ronnie Lott calls a players only meeting and he basically tells everyone to stop being lazy and stop lollygagging around that they're the 49ers and they play with a higher standard. And the other thing, which I think is the most interesting, is that it's after that game that Bill Walsh tells Eddie DeBartolo that 1988 will be his last season as head coach of the 49ers. And so at that point, apparently the next day, the next practice, Walsh comes in and he's like freed. The burden has been lifted and he's light and he's on his feet and he's like chuckling with people. He starts delegating responsibilities that he took on for himself. Mike Holmgren didn't develop an offensive game plan until the playoff game against Minnesota later in the 88 season. <laughs> Great time. Great time to do it. Yeah. And, and what's, what I thought that was such an interesting point because Walsh is of course known for his coaching tree and he's known for having coaches that go on and have illustrious careers. And people think it's because of the responsibilities and ways that, that he taught them during their, their tenure with the 49ers. And I think that's true in a lot of ways, but he was still very much a control freak and yeah. he didn't let them do a lot of the things that maybe they needed to do in order to grow. Um, so, so yeah, but that those two games kind of changed a lot. And after that week 11 loss, the Niners actually end up 10 and six and sneak into, well, they don't sneak into the playoffs, but they make the playoffs and then things get interesting. Yeah, I mean, you look at that very next week. I mean, you beat uh, Redskins team by 16 points. That was the defending the Super defending Bowl Super Bowl champions, champions. Uh, yeah. at that point. And then you get another blowout uh, a couple weeks later to the Saints. Like, yeah, you, you kind of like are really rolling at that point to end the season and enter the playoffs. Yeah, so they enter the playoffs. They exercise their Minnesota Demons. Uh, they beat the, the Minnesota Vikings. They beat the Chicago Bears, of course. Uh, this was the, the game where they go in and of course it, things are cold because it's Chicago and, and they win and now they are in the Super Bowl. So they are ready to face the Cincinnati Bengals, the Cincinnati Bengals who have the NFL MVP in Boomer Esiason and a head coach in Sam Weish, who was formerly the quarterback's coach in San Francisco. So before we get to the game breakdown and the things that we think, let's take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. All right, so shout out to Game Pass for having the Super Bowl up. If you want to rewatch it, definitely watch it there because the quality is pretty good. TV tape is solid. Uh, first thing that we think, man, it was kind of boring that first half. <laughs> uh, football in the 80s wasn't as good as football is now. No. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there. Yeah, I, uh, 
Yeah, e- even the 94 Super Bowl, like even though there were some vestiges of the offense from 88, 89, especially with the, the, the way the running backs were aligned, the philosophy, I feel, of calling the game was a lot different. Um, and, and you had a lot more run plays, especially early. The Niners, I think, were definitely, they leaned a bit more past and they were a bit more even. Yeah. Um, but the, the Bengals were just like, hey, we've got this big dude named Icky Woods. Let's go ahead and batter him down. He does a cool dance when he gets in the end zone. Oh, man. The number of neck rolls, I thought, during this game was astoundingly phenomenal. Oh I remember wearing I remember wearing a neck roll when I played pro like Pop Warner because I wanted to be cool like the pros and I could never get it to stay on. It would always like fall down the back of my <laughs> shoulder pads and watching this game I realized that wasn't just a me problem. That was an NFL problem. That was a football problem everywhere. Uh, and I'm glad they, that like, I could relate. They like definitely hadn't figured out shoulder pads yet. Like no. shoulder pads were so huge on just everyone. Could like, you could you imagine like Bill Romanowski, a rookie Bill Romanowski before he spits in people's faces, uh, looking at Aaron Donald's shoulder pads. Can you imagine inserting Michael Bennett <laughs> into this game? Like barely even as he's wearing like a youth small shoulder pad. <laughs> oh man. But I think even though the game was not the most exciting in the first half, this game, even though it was close at the end, really should have been a blowout. The 49ers shot themselves in the foot often and it started with their struggle in the red zone. Yeah, I, I think like you're going into, you know, by the time you get to the fourth quarter, right, and this is close and the 49ers are trailing, if you hadn't looked at the score, which actually is a very easy thing to do watching these old games, very difficult if you don't have like a play-by-play up or something like that to have any idea at, like what stage of the game you're on. Like you have to really pay attention and like keep track of like what down is it. Like I have no idea how much time's left in the quarter, like very weird that you just have no idea about any of that stuff. Um, but you're going through just kind of on feel through these first couple quarters and, and really most of the way through the third. And it feels like the 49ers should be just dominating this game, right? Like they uh, by far were able to move the ball far, far more effectively on offense than, than Cincinnati was able to. Cincinnati could barely string together, you know, competent drives that, that approach scoring range. Um, but yeah, the key thing was every time they got kind of in the red zone, red zone plus area, they just couldn't capitalize, right? They ended up kicking a field goal on an early drive from just outside the 20. They had another one where they got inside, uh, all the way inside the the five-yard line down to like the two and kicked a field goal on fourth and one from the two and missed it. Like just missed opportunities to really kind of build up a bigger lead there. Um, and honestly, like you could even tip that all the way to the other end. And, and there were enough times that they shot themselves in the foot in this game that if a couple of bounces don't go their way, like Cincinnati could have had a much better, like bigger lead going into the fourth quarter. Yeah. So the, that Bill Walsh decision to kick the field goal after the timeout was a pretty big one. I mean, it it was a, it was over, it was a poor decision. And he said in later years that he wishes he could take that decision back. He wishes he would have gone for it, but they, they made the same mistake that Barry Switzer made against the 49ers in the 1994 NFC championship game that we reviewed last week where that's just such a poor decision. It costs you a lot. And when you look at the expected points added of that play, that is the second to worst play of any team that game. So it's another decision where you, you just, you're giving up points at that point because even if you miss that conversion, 
the other team is so backed up that the likelihood of them right. getting a safety or punting uh, is much higher than them driving 99 down 99 yards down the field and scoring. Um, so so it's it's just an interesting decision that again this is one of those areas where I think the decision making matrix has shifted so much so the other way. Yeah. Um, and, and you know it's it's just interesting to see those decisions then in the past when those things are defensible. And it was funny too because you get the same. I mean, you mentioned obviously you get the missed field goal, but like a literally a fullback trap play on third and eight, like the play right before the missed field goal. And then yeah, you keep the offense out there. Looks like they might decide to go and go for it. End up changing their mind after the timeout, and and you get a bad snap that leads to a missed nineteen yard field goal right there. Yeah. Um, which by the way, that was kind of another random note that I noticed in this game was. Uh, it's, it's hilarious how far kickers have come since then. There was a point in which, uh, for, I forget the Cincinnati's kicker name, but all I remember is it was five, six and he had size five feet. Uh, I remember. So one of the, the, the announcers, I think it was Dick Enberg, who was the, the play-by-play guy in this game basically was like, they really like him inside of 40 yards and anything they can get outside of 40 is just a bonus. Right. And like, yeah. we've moved that threshold like 10, maybe 15 yards back now, like yep. in modern days. So it's just funny, like how less reliable that stuff was. And then even though you had a less reliable kicking game, you had coaches that were more reliant on it and more conservative. So the whole thing just didn't make a lot of sense. So the 49ers really should have been in a blowout. I mean, you're, you're right. You look at the first half stats, and the Bengals had just five first downs, 93 total yards. The Niners basically doubled them up. They had 181 total yards and 11 first downs in the first half. When you look at the DVOA, the defense-adjusted value over average, of the teams going in, going into the Super Bowl at the end of the year, the, the Cincinnati Bengals had the number one ranked offense based on DVOA. And they had more size and MVP and they had the number 14 defense. The Niners had the number four ranked offense and the third ranked defense. And, and yet the turnover luck seemed to loom large here because the Niners fumbled a snap, had a backwards pass. Roger Craig lost a fumble on a third down run. John Taylor muffed a punt. And then on the flip side, Ronnie Lott drops an interception. Tim McKayer drops another almost pick. Boomer Esiason seemed to want to throw to Niners receivers because he wanted to get in on the action. I mean, it was it was basically such a fluky game when it came to turnovers. It really could have swung the game either way because if the Niners end up losing some more of those turnovers and the Bengals are able to get their offense going, they could have easily scored a touchdown or two. And the way the game was going, that could have been enough to put it away. Exactly. Yeah. So like, I think on a play by play basis, right. You're looking in, okay, the 49ers are playing much better football kind of down in down out. And then when you go to kind of what are often these key moments, right. That can be huge turning points in these games, um, in, in the turnovers. And a lot of times who is winning that turnover battle ends up being, the difference in the game, right? Because you just get more opportunities for your offense if you're able to to win that turnover battle. And a lot of times, you know, depending on where those turnovers are taking place, you're getting your offense set up with shorter fields and it's easier to score in those situations. So there's so many of those plays that if, again, the, just the bounce doesn't go their way, right? You talk about fumbles, like a lot of that, like, sure, a muff snap, that's going to be recovered by the offense most of the time. So like, whatever, chalk just that one. Just because of the proximity to the linemen and what yeah. happens and... 
And so, you know, most of the time you're going to have a quarterback or a running back that falls on that. But stuff like the muff punt, right? That if if they don't get on that, you like, normally lose those. Muff punts are usually the ones that are the opposite of actual uh, of missed snaps. And that's a huge swing in field position. And now the Bengals are taking over, you know, kind of deep in 49ers territory there and, and more likely to score. Um, and then I think, you know, you look at uh, what was just devastating to me. Montana, right? No interceptions in Super Bowls. That's his claim to he fame, man. That's the if if you're arguing a Brady fan and you just want to troll him, uh, and and yeah. just say, you know what, Joe Montana never threw a pick, never threw a pick, never lost Super Bowl. What up, bro? But turns out that there was at least one interception that should have happened. So yeah. let's talk about turnover worthy plays because we have the benefit of having a PFF analyst dressed in a Mahomes shirt uh, here on the podcast, uh, at least during the off season. And and so when you were viewing the game, you were also doing some uh, some quarterback grading via the PFF couldn't, system. Couldn't help myself, man. And so I think it'd be interesting if you shared what the final quarterback grades were for Esiason and Montana in this game. Yeah. So obviously going through this game, and I did the same thing for the last game, um, you know, that we talked about in in the '94 championship game, just to kind of get an idea of you know where these quarterbacks land there don't have the benefit of, of getting all the fancy math behind the scenes to get those converted into zero to 100 grades. So this is just like raw, cumulative, old school. I was going to say, it's old school. Even worse than old school, because even old school grades had like some, some normalization that, that took place there after the fact. And so that's how you ended up with like 9.1 or something like that, even though they we're doing it in a half point increments. So, um, but yeah, Montana, like I think this is where you look at and be like, okay, this is why despite all of these things, despite shooting themselves in the foot and, and, you know, not taking advantage of red zone opportunities and, you know, kind of getting a little bit lucky with turnovers. The reason they still win this game is because of just a huge difference in quarterback play. And so you get Montana at the high end of it and ends up with a plus four grade in this. And then Esiason all the way down at the opposite end of the spectrum of the minus 3.5 is where I had him. So now contextualize that for me a little bit because I'm used to, I mean, it's been a while. Even when I looked at like OG PFF, you still had some of the normalization. So the, yeah. the game grades would be a little different. How often do you see a plus four or minus four grade over the course of a regular season? So if I had to guess like where those would land, you know, zero to 100 style, I think your, your Montana game is, uh, is up there, right? So, um, only one turnover worthy play, which we'll kind of touch on, you know, had the dropped interception, uh, in the end zone late in the third quarter or early in the fourth quarter. Um, but otherwise like very accurate with the ball. So not a lot of negative plays in general, um, had a few really good downfield throws, you know, so get some big time throws in there and, and like get some underselling. of those plus one. He had some fucking dimes. Oh down man. Some of them were great. Like, like there was a one, there's this one where he throws a, a kind of a corner route to Roger Craig who had motioned out of the backfield. Oh, that was my favorite throw of the game. Drops it right over the top. You have like what I think was like a linebacker. Yeah. yeah. Underneath zone defender. That's trying to kind of sink and stay underneath Roger Craig and just like floats it right in over the top. And you compare um, that to a, not a similar play, but a similar situation where Boomer Esiason is staring at Bill Romanowski and all he has to do is get it over Romanowski <laughs> as he's rolling out to his left. Oh and God. he throws it basically right at Romanowski. And yeah. Romanowski, not a dude known for his hops. And he's able to jump up, tip the ball to himself, and come down with the pick, uh, and, and I, I believe, in the second half. Yeah. Uh, so Montana is just absolutely dealing. And, and I mean, there was a, a throw to Jerry Rice 
that was there were a couple throws to Rice that were just absolutely yeah. on the money. Uh, I mean, he was playing a fantastic game. Yeah, so it was just you. You kind of had everything there. So I would guess that his game ended up very high, if not like in the nineties. Um, you know, you'd probably be looking at like high eighties or something like that. So I think very, very good grade for him. Uh, Esiason, you're looking low. You're looking probably uh, definitely sub sixty, if not sub fifty grade. So um, four turnover worthy plays in this game. Nothing downfield. No big time throws. He threw um, to in the quadruple coverage at one point to yeah. uh, your boy Chris Collinsworth. Who <laughs> Dude, I- Collinsworth, man, made a grab in this game. Oh yeah, the, I mean we forget the dude six five. Right? Yeah, and I literally cli- forgot that. He climbed the ladder and went up to get that. Got one, and then he had the diving one uh, over. Yeah. So that was like the other thing that you got with with Boomer's game was even some of his positively graded throws and, and stuff that he was completing, you know, kind of in the intermediate area or further down the field, it was off target enough that it still required like a really good play from the receiver, right? So he wasn't exactly setting his guys up for success, whereas you saw – Montana, like the the ball placement was just so precise, and it gives guys opportunities to run after the catch. Like uh, there's a play, I think again it was right in that range, uh, end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, where you get a 31 yard gain to uh, Jerry Rice, but it starts at it's like an eight yard throw, and he's got a dude barreling in on him because uh, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, Jesse Sapolo. Remember that? That was oh, a thing, man. right? That was a long time ago. It was a long yeah. time ago. Uh, we did indeed interview Jesse Sapolo for the podcast. Sorry, Jesse. Uh, I don't want to make you an enemy of the pod right now, <laughs> but dear God, uh, whatever happened on this play uh, had me rolling because uh, it was bad. And so whoever the defender was is like barreling down in Montana's face. Um, but again, just like puts it right on the money. Rice has just a little bit of separation, and it's one of those throws where if it's on the money, you give a guy like Rice to run after the catch, which is what happens, so he turns that into a 31-yard gain. If this is off even a little bit, the defender's in good enough position that he's likely going to make that tackle you know, right shortly after the catch, and you're talking about only maybe a 10, 11-yard gain, right? So it's it's those sort of differences that you saw, but then, yeah, just so many bad plays from Esiason and, and putting the ball in harm's way. Um, had, you know, obviously the one interception to Romanowski had one that should have been an easy interception from Lot. Ronnie Lot, man. So that rotation, I mean, it is inexcusable that Boomer Esiason missed that read. I mean, Ronnie Lot is not even trying to disguise the fact that he's coming down into the box. And then he's just, he's just chilling there. He's just chilling and, and he's reading his eyes and Boomer doesn't even see him. Doesn't even see him. Throws right to him. Ronnie Lot absolutely should have had that pick. And, and it was, I mean, it was egregious. You look at that now and a casual football watcher would see that and be like, that's absolute trash. Like how, yeah. how could that happen? And, and I think if you were, if you were to look at this one single game, you think to yourself, how in the hell was this dude the MVP of the year? How, yeah, how did this team have the number one rated offense based on DVOA? And they had the, I think they had the most overall yards that year in the NFL as well. So it, it's just such a, a crazy thing that he, that he had such a poor game. But I think the the kind of funny thing is is Boomer Esiason is a lot more emblematic, I feel like, of your typical 80s quarterback, right? Um, and, and most quarterbacks even before then, even going back to to good quarterbacks from the 70s, like guys like Terry Bradshaw and stuff like that, like their game was built on a lot more downfield throws, right? And it was guys that kind of had bigger arms, but you're not completing a high percentage of your passes. Like Boomer was a, a career sub 60% completion percent guy. 
like um you know montana had a season in you know this next season 89, 89 yeah. over 70 which was like unheard of at that time so you really saw guys like montana and young became more of what we expect from today's quarterbacks, right? Where you do mix in, because uh, he, he does benefit from a lot of underneath throws in this game. I mean, you get a lot of plays where you're dumping it off, you know, right in front of the line of scrimmage to Roger Craig, and he's getting a lot of yards after the catch, things that are going to be like zero-graded throws in our system, right? So stuff underneath coverage that you're expecting every quarterback to make now, but quarterbacks didn't make a lot of those throws back then. Well, I think too when when we were texting about this earlier today, I said he is he's basically the the emblematic traits guy. It's like, oh, yeah, you're gonna make a bo- like that's a bonehead decision throwing to Ronnie Lott directly in your face. Um, but man, look at that cannon! Like, yeah. and, and and he does, and he's got a cannon. I mean, Boomer Esiason has an absolute cannon. Uh, and so I do think that that is it, it is. I think you're right. He is absolutely emblematic of '80s quarterbacks, and and I think. The the dis the the difference between those two quarterbacks is ultimately you know the difference in the game uh, among among yep. some other things but there was a lot of interesting history in this game offensively as well because this was also a time where you start to see the prevalence of the outside zone something that you didn't see a whole hell of a lot I mean the Redskins won the Super Bowl the previous year and of course their whole thing was the sweep and, and you look at the Niners run and pull basically two two linemen seemingly every run when they're yeah. running in the Super Bowl. And, and that was not some, that was very, very common in the era. It was like pro set, near, far, pull two guards, power runs. Uh, or yeah, I mean, they were runs. running like that. I mean, it, it was basically like the Packers sweep yeah, the Packers from sweep. Lombardi days, right, yep. is, is kind of what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think you see, it was just funny going back um, or like thinking back to previous, you know, whether it was scheme month episodes or, you know, whatever else it is, you know, in, in kind of past episodes that we've done, um, where we've really gotten deep into some of the history and, and, you know, these, the, the things that we would use in those episodes is like the starting points were a lot of things that we saw in this game. Right. So yeah, when we talk about the, the zone running game that we talked about a bunch, you know, when Shanahan was hired, when Kelly was hired, um, this was really one of the first teams in the NFL to make that a base run, right? Where they were doing that the bulk of the time. And in the, in the pregame kind of lead up, the announcers were talking about whether or not the referee would stand over the ball and let them yeah. do the no huddle thing because right. the no exactly. huddle was yep. also a brand new kind of not invention, but it was, it was a novelty for the Bengals to run. It's probably one of the reasons why they had one of the best offenses that year is because they, they went quick. They went quick for that era Literally in my notes for the game, I have, let me see if I can find that at the top of the game notes. I said, um, the no huddle seems normal. Right. And, and so, yeah, we, it's, it's something we've come to expect now, but, um, they were again, one of the first teams at the NFL level to really use this a decent amount of the time in non two minute situations, right? You had these guys and then eventually we would get to like the bills of the late eighties, early nineties with Jim Kelly that, that went to it a lot. Um, and so you see a lot of that there, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, before the zone blitzes with Dick LeBeau, right. And, and kind of, you know, we're really I forgot Dick LeBeau was the defensive coordinator for the Bengals. And one of the announcers mentions Dick LeBeau and they show him on a sideline drawing up a play. And I was like, Oh shit, that's like, yeah, that's a thing. And then I went back and I watched some plays in the first quarter and I was like, Oh, there's a zone blitz. Oh, there's a zone blitz. And I started picking up the, the different zone blitzes. And yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was, it's just, you forget those little quirks of history that 
uh, that he was there. And, and the zone blitzes were very real, and Joe Montana had to put up with them. Yeah, and again, like it's just a thing that wasn't as common. You know, you you it, you know definitely didn't start here. You know, he was one that started doing it a, a bunch a little bit earlier than this. But again, a lot of things in this one game. And I think the last thing that's very relatable to uh, even current 49ers is you get what was that early version of the Leo position, right? And Charles Haley playing what they called uh, the elephant role in in George Seifert's defense, and you could see them. Uh, basically split so they would keep the same personnel right the same front seven guys there and then kind of rotate back and forth between these three-man fronts where you'd have Charles Haley stand up and basically play what looked like a 3-4 type defense and then you would see them let Haley get his hand in the dirt playing that elephant role and and get in your under front your 4-3 under front with Romanowski being the Sam linebacker on the opposite side up on the line of scrimmage and then just your two off-ball guys so what we've been seeing the 49ers do recently and a lot of teams across the NFL do recently is kind of a base down uh, or base personnel defense Um, this was something that we saw them basically in throughout the game. And of course, your four three unders, where you have your three technique on the weak side, um, and so it's basically something that the the Seahawks basically do now because you think of Pete Carroll, and I mean this is where his defense is origin right from. Yep. Yeah, this is where the beginning of that comes from. And so it, it was interesting when I when I was looking at the the starting lineups during the broadcast tape, and they're like, and they showed a three four, and I literally kind of went, what the. Three four. I thought it was a four three, and then as the game goes on, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Like Haley is just all over the place. Yeah. Um. And he, ha- I mean, he had a pretty good game. He had a couple, of, especially late in the game. Oh yeah, had-, had one sack where he just like roast that right tackle. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. He had an, he had one where uh he was he had one where he was offsides, but he had another one where he absolutely just completely blows by him, gets around the corner. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he, he doesn't have the bend that I remember him having. Like you compare him to the bend that you see now with like Von oh, Miller. Man. Like, uh, and it's, it's totally different. Von Miller would have, we talk about like 12 sacks in a season being good. Von Miller would add 12 sacks in this game. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like put him over Anthony Munoz, uh, like uh, over hey, there, man, like was, at left tackle hall of famer. Like, I don't give a shit. Von dude, Miller is going to beat him every single down. Man, during, I was looking at that Bengals offensive line and I was like, man, there's some Latinos playing on that offensive line i'm proud of that i'm okay with that like there's you don't see a lot of latinos playing oh, in the nfl nowadays no get out of here no uh so yeah it's i was i was okay with that I, i'm okay with air adjusting offensive lines get yeah and and i mean muñoz like uh you didn't see a whole lot happening from the left side right uh no. he was playing left tackle i mean and they run a lot and that was kind of the thing that was really funny to me too in in this broadcast i mean one it was a dark difference um in this this, broadcast crew compared to uh madden and Summerall, right which is it's just night and day um but one of the things that they like kept talking about was like how big and powerful this cincinnati offensive line is and really like what they were doing for the first time was like being a quicker offensive line and and being guys that could move around and get to these outside zone blocks and and all that kind of stuff so it was just uh it was it was funny to watch that so ultimately, the turning point in this game for me was the kick return by the Bengals. Because once that happens, it feels like it breaks the game open. It broke open a game that was kind of tight. And, and once the Bengals take the lead, I almost feel like the Niners felt like they had to go into another gear. And while in the first half, the team was more balanced run pass, which is the philosophy that Bill Walsh espoused, once they get down in the third quarter, 
in in a game where it's been a defensive struggle, the 49ers feel like they've got to throw the ball in order to get ahead. And once they start throwing the ball, they start leaning into the most efficient part of their offense and everything begins to open up because that drive immediately after that, that touchdown, uh, the kickoff return is surgical. Yeah. That's that's that drive where you see the the dime to Rice and then immediately followed by a dime to Craig. I mean, it was like four or five plays and they scored so quickly and they went pretty pass heavy immediately after that kick the, the kickoff return. Yeah, so that drive was uh, only the four plays um, and all of them passes. And I think yeah, that that stretch in general for me was kind of the point that I would would look at. So yeah, obviously the the kick return touchdown puts Cincinnati up seven basically entering the fourth quarter and again a game that really it felt like they shouldn't have been in at that stage and so you see the change in philosophy from the 49ers and going super pass heavy at that point throughout the fourth quarter Um, and then I think even on that next drive though you had what could have been I mean who knows like maybe a game ender the one bad play on that so you again you started with the the, the eight-yard out route to Rice that he turns into 31 yards, and then you get the the corner route that he throws over the top to Craig on the next play, and suddenly you're down at the 14-yard line and and ready to score, and then they look they to double post. Double post on, on the right side, and Montana throws this maybe a little late, forces it a little bit in, into tight coverage here, and uh, the corner, I forget his name. Um, I wrote it down somewhere. Billups, something Billups. Uh, not a great name, but dude drops this easy intercept. I mean, hits him right in the hands in the end zone. So likely looking at a touchback. You know, you're not starting super deep in your own territory. You know, he's not going to be tackled inside the five or something like that. So touchback. You you put your offense up seven again. That was the best offense in football for the entire season, essentially. And, and who knows what the game looks like from there, but you get him dropping that pick. And then on the very next play, rice beats that same defender for a touchdown. Um, and, and we're tied up again. And so I think, yeah, that stretch could have gone very differently for the 49ers. And and who knows if they would have been able to make up the difference over the rest of the fourth quarter. It was a huge turn. It it was a huge turn. And, And so we get then to the player or players of the game and David, I want you to tell me why Lee Johnson, the punter for the Bengals, was indeed the MVP. Oh my God, I can't even dignify that with a response. Can you? I mean, look, he had a, he had a fantastic punt in the corner, downed it inside the five. I'd be uh, lying if I said I watched most of the special teams plays <laughs> in this game. Um, anytime one looked interesting on the play by play, I would be like, all right, I'll watch this one. So I watched like the the Taylor muff fumble. I watched the touchdown return. I'm skipping the rest of that shit, man. Uh, but uh, for real, though, is Jerry Rice, of course, won Super Bowl MVP. Yeah. Dude had over 200 uh, receiving yards, and he did play an absolute pivotal role in the game. Uh, I still think that Joe Montana probably should have got the MVP. It's tough. Um, I think it's I think it's really close. Um, and I do think... I think it is fair. I, I would lean a little bit toward Rice um, because I think there was enough that he created on his own. So obviously, yeah, Montana was fantastic um, and and definitely one of the best players in this game. But there were a few plays in particular at kind of crucial moments that Rice made kind of outside of what Montana did. So you look at, um, again, even turning that eight-yard throw, right, to start that touchdown drive, getting big yardage after the catch. There was another one, um, that was on like a, what was it? Second long, I think like a second and 20 play or something like that. Um, 
yeah, so on the final drive, so this is is, is two plays before the uh, John Taylor touchdown to, to end it. Um, you have second and 20, and Rice takes a dig route, basically bounces off a tackler like right at the catch point and turns what was a, a, a pass that was thrown about 15 yards in the air into a 27-yard gain and a first down inside the, the 20 now at the red zone. Um, even the longest play of the game, which was still a pretty good throw, um, from Montana, but one of the few plays where he looked to go just straight over the top on a go route, I thought was fantastic from Rice because you see him uh, pretty late in the route, actually, stack on top of the corner late. So he gets there. They're kind of even through a lot of it on the, on the replay. Um, very late, though, gets right on top of the guy and kind of hesitates for just a second. So it's what could have been more of a contested-type situation. But Rice hesitates a little bit, gets the corner right on his back, and then extends out and gets is able to make the catch like away from his frame, away from where the defender can get to it. Um, that was such just like a brilliant move um, to get like a 43-yard gain there. So there were a lot of little things that he was doing, a lot of things after the catch that I think um, he really added to what Montana was doing that I think it was enough to kind of tip the scales his direction. All right, you've nudged me. You didn't have to convince me too much. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, man, we had a disappointing Jerry Rice game in that 94 championship. This was very much not that. This was the, this was the redemption game. This was a re- But overall, I think the, the play, the final play that Bill Walsh calls in this game is 20 halfback, curl X up. And John Taylor catches the ball i mean in stride dude keeps running out the end zone yeah and and i i will never ever forget i mean that drive was absolutely surgical yes it was ridiculous i mean you've got texas routes from roger craig repeatedly all day yeah destroying the short zones for the Bengals. you've got the deep passes you've got jerry rice breaking a tackle and i mean it's almost I'm not lucky for the Niners because you always want to score a touchdown. But if Jerry Rice doesn't get tackled right there, then, I mean, he probably scores. And he scores easily. And the Yeah, Bengals there's have, one guy left. Yeah. And, and the Bengals have uh, a lot of time to try to score uh, and potentially win the game. But, I mean, you've got a, – a, they ran at the right time. You ran a counter to Craig. Um, I mean, the out to Rice was completely beautiful. And, and, of course, you've got the story of the game, which is Joe Montana getting into the huddle right before the drive. And the team is super tense. And, you know, you've got everyone. Harris Barton's looking at him and the whole team's looking at him. And he just goes like, hey, look, isn't that John Candy? <laughs> and everyone looks to the end zone and John Candy's there standing around and everyone kind of loosens up. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is just a regular drive. Uh, and then everyone, and, you know, they go in and, and they win the game. So, I mean, that, that drive was surgical. That play was amazing. And for me, I will never get the indelible image of, John Taylor jumping up after he makes that touchdown and like pumping the ball up in the air. Yeah. That's the thing that as a child, I remember so vividly. Uh, and that literally was the moment where I was like hooked for life. I mean, that th- like that whole play was, was so fun on like a number of levels too. I mean, so you obviously had had what had been like that drive and then really for the entire game, right? The Jerry Rice show. And, and he was making the big plays at all these crucial moments. And it was very much the go-to guy there in the passing game. And so what you had was basically John Taylor lined up essentially as which, by the way, in got three some point receivers in, in three-point stances. I saw like, that. Even Rice was in three-point stances yes. uh, a few times, which was just incredible. Um 
But so you have, you know, John Taylor in, in more of an inside position, basically lined up as a tight end in a three-point stance. And then you motion Rice outside of him. And so Rice ends up running kind of more of a vertical route up the sideline and is really able to kind of pull some of the coverage there. And then you also get a great route from John Taylor. So um, kind of stick nod-ish, you know, maybe not quite selling the stick as much, but really kind of bending the route outside and and getting the safety that was there to kind of really open up outside, try to get outside leverage, think that he's going to that out route, and then breaks it kind of vertically up the seam there. And Montana just threads, man, this, this throw between coverage, like right on the money again, perfect ball location was, was definitely a throw that if he is, if this is a boomer size and throw, like there are defenders in position to be able to maybe tip this pass. And uh, like, nobody's, I think really going to pick it off and nobody's quite that close, but definitely could, uh, you know, again, deflect it and, and make this a much more difficult throw. Um, but puts it right on the money and, you know, you get in the end zone there for the game winner, like was, was pretty dope. Do you know the running backs had switched places based on where they normally were, which was common for the 49ers in this time? But you had Craig and Rathman. They, right. Sometimes they line up on the left, some, they, and they just sometimes would switch for no reason, but they would just run what they knew what the route was supposed to be. On that play, they switched, and they ran the, they, they ran the original route they were supposed to run, and it almost screwed the entire play up. <laughs> No, I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, yeah that's pretty funny. Uh, it, it's pretty wild. I mean, it was everything about that play was like, it, it, and we go back to some of the flukes from the the early part of the game, and another one of those instances where I mean, everything like this is this is the offense that Walsh orchestrates. You know, he had picked these plays specifically because they attacked what he called the Bengals' basic defense. Basically, when he got them stuck in that quick no huddle, then he knew what their defensive call was basically going to be. And he had called and he had designed a bunch of plays to attack that defense specifically. And he gets them in this situation. And Joe Montana is actually trying to call a timeout because he's hyperventilating. And Bill Walsh keeps telling him, no, keep playing, keep playing. He didn't know Joe Montana was hyperventilating. <laughs> and, and finally they get the timeout and they get, and, and it just, it's so many little things in this drive that it's just like, holy shit. If they, if if he actually hyperventilates, if yeah. they do call the timeout, if the running backs don't eventually correct enough of their route to give the space to John Taylor to run his route, I mean, so much could go wrong. And in the end, we have you know this beautiful play, and and then you've got basically the end of the Bill Walsh era at the end of this game. Um, and I think that's honestly the saddest part to me because the Niners do go on to win, of course, the very next Super Bowl, and they go back yeah. to back. But you know, ten years. Nowadays, just doesn't seem like a lot. I mean, you you look at Bill Belichick and you think to yourself, how the hell long has Bill Belichick been coaching the Patriots? I mean, God, we're going on almost twenty. Yeah, maybe. It, maybe 20? His first year was what, like oh one, oh two, oh one was the first Brady year. I don't remember. Was that the first Belichick year as well? I, I don't, don't think so. At this point. I don't um, think so. It I may think have been, he might have been there like a year or two. Yeah, before. it may have been ninety nine. Um, um, but while you fire up the Google machine, I mean, at that point, 20 years, I mean, think of what Bill Walsh could have done if he would have been there for 20 years. And, and so when yeah. we think of George Seifert, 2000, though, so this is basically going to be 19, his 20th, 20th year. year. Yeah. I mean, George Seifert is a, uh, was for the 49ers, a very, very good coach. And he won, I mean, he won two Super Bowls. Like there's not a lot of head coaches that can say they've done that. And, and so I just, I just keep wondering about that. And Bill Walsh has said that he regrets leaving the game as early as he did. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, his, his 
uh, I guess I forget if it's his wife or his girlfriend because he in in the biography it talks about his affair that he had and he ends up going back I think he gets back together with his wife but I forget if it's his wife or his his girlfriend who says that even though he says he would have wanted to return it, it took too much of a toll on him he couldn't have done it he couldn't have gone back um, and so I wonder if just his his makeup of just the kind of human he was wouldn't have let him coach longer right um, but that's always one of those what ifs Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you wonder, I mean, obviously they, they did well, basically. I mean, Seifert took over the best possible situation in 89, right? Like you have this uh, incredible team that very much was Walsh's team, you know, and, and they were just kind of, he, he was just trying not to screw it up at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, I think obviously by the time you get to the 94 Super Bowl, much different team. I mean, yeah, Young and Rice around, but otherwise like a very different team. And, and so I think that is a little bit of a different thing, much more his Super Bowl that year. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, it feels like, you know, what would have happened, you know, in those years in the early 90s if Walsh was around like, yeah, and I don't know, it's fun to think about. All right, so that just about does it for this edition of the Better Rivals podcast. But before we go, David, we've got a couple of quick hits about the game that I think would be pretty fun if we got to. So let's do it as quick as we possibly can. Quick hits, go. Roger Craig had his best rushing season of his career in 1988. He had 1,502 rushing yards. Is Roger Craig a Hall of Famer? Go. Short answer, I lean no. Sorry. Oh, man. I still lean yes. Absolutely. I don't know. I need to think about it a little bit more, look into it a, a, a bit more to really see, but I, I feel like he's Hall of Very Good. I'll give, I'll give you these two things to chew on. You've always said that you need to be considered one of the best at your position in order to be considered for the hall of fame. Yes. In, I think in, peak in is important. Yeah. yeah. And so this was effectively his peak year. Uh, and so you set aside the fact that he was a revolutionary thousand thousand yard kind of person who modeled the new modern running back. But then on top of that, during this year, he was at the peak of the running back position. So he fulfills a lot of the criteria that you would have for. For one year, though. Yeah, well, all you need is one. Again, you, I, I, I would need to look at but just like initial thought, I, I kind of lean a, a little bit, no. More compelling. I'm going to add this one just in there. More compelling case for the Hall of Fame. Uh, Frank Gore or Ronnie Lott? Like if I'm a Hall of Fame voter or what the Hall of Fame voters will actually do? Yes and yes. Hall of Fame voters, uh, Gore definitely has a better case. He just has the longevity at this point. Like the, the counting numbers are there for him. Um Ooh, I, I might think that Craig has a better case for me, maybe. I think there's enough other things there. I think yeah. maybe the peak was a little bit higher. I think when you factor in, like you said, being uh, kind of one of the first of his kind to be that dual threat type running back. Um, yeah. And I think he won Offensive Player of the Year this year. Yeah, I don't know. That I don't know. I think, well, my head, but I'll look it up while you hit us with a um, Oh my God, Ronnie Lott. Uh I, I believe this is the game that em, that embodies the woo lick. Uh, dear God, there was a play where he hits Icky Woods so hard that it feels like you can just see his soul leave his body in slow motion, like it's some Doctor Strange shit or something like that. Like it's just my God, how did he even survive this hit? Um, had I mean Ronnie Lott, man bad fucking dude he did it to another running back too uh i forget who number 27 was but that guy's dead too um i gotta say though i gotta i'm gonna grab the next one instantly because this was like one of my favorite parts of the entire game was and maybe like the, the single most 80s thing about this game was okay we just john taylor just scores what is the game winning touchdown right 
one of the first things that Dick Enberg thinks to say about John Taylor in the immediate aftermath of this moment is that John Taylor sells cars for Ricky Jackson in the offseason. I was just like, what? That is all you've got to say about the guy that just scored the game-winning touchdown? Come on. Yeah, that's that's very 80s. Uh, uh, so my, my interesting note about this game is Kevin Fagan. I thought he played a really good game in this Super Bowl. But the reason I always remember Kevin Fagan is because of profanity filters. When I was a moderator on the 49ers web zone forums way back in the day, we had profanity filters. And one of the profanity filters was for the word, you know, F-A-G. Fat. Sure. I don't even know. I'd like, Eddie Murphy can say that in Beverly Hills Cop 2. I don't know that I can say that now. I don't really feel strong about saying it. Yeah, no. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Me either. I'm just going to nope. go ahead and say the, the F-A-G word. Uh, but that would always get filtered out whenever people would try to post about Kevin Fagan. <laughs> and so Kevin Fagan just became kind of a, a you know, an internet joke. Kevin uh, Star and uh, Kevin F. Star Star and... <laughs> so that, that's how i'll always remember kevin fagan always oh my god uh yeah and then uh the other quick hits that we had what we've already talked about but bill yeah. walsh wished he could take that fourth down callback in super bowl 23 and the final game call of bill walsh's entire nfl well entire 49ers head coaching career 20 halfback curl x i've got one final one hit me which is kind of two and one but is a f- weird ass 80s officiating things so oh. this was the point <laughs> the super excited ref uh oh my oh god so yeah there was one that the, this ref was just incredibly excited anytime he got a chance he's like dude knows he's about to be on tv and he's like can't wait to get fucking call this holding penalty like hell yes um but to just like uh, horrible, horrible penalties that are in effect at this time. So this was when, during the era that you had the in-the-grasp sack calls. The sack, yeah. So there was, like, one play where, uh, I think it was Charles Haley, actually, like, comes around the edge um, and gets Boomer Esiason, and they blow it dead, even though Esiason still, like, is standing and tries to get a throw-off at that point, but they blow it dead because he's in the grass. This let happened, like, multiple times. Let me guess the other one. The other one is the force-out rule? The force-out rule is the yes. worst fucking rule like how did they decide at any point that that was a great idea so happy that they changed that uh yeah i believe in my notes the exact quote is man that force out rule is trash yeah like that was so garbage like i don't even i'm not even comfortable saying that he would have come down in bounds even if he hadn't been forced out but also how are we going to decide to like give the like, oh man oh you shouldn't push him out of bounds you need, you need to give him a chance to catch it and the ref and you can hear him on the audio too the ref was like you can hear the the Niners defensive back complaining and the ref was like he was forced out he was forced out like he was getting aggressive and I was like dang like no shit man what do you want me to do yeah exactly well, dumb rule uh, it was but alright that does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast you can always follow me at Better Rivals on Twitter David where can they get you that'll be at PFF underscore David thanks again for tuning in to our little Delorean episode of the rewatch and as always go Niners go Niners